Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast about death where my brother and I, that's John and Hank Green, answer your questions, give you debuse advice, and bring you all of the week's news from both Mars, a planet, and AFC Wimbledon, a football team in the UK. Hello, John? I'm here. You didn't ask me how I'm doing. Usually you ask me how I'm doing, and then I answer. How are you doing? Terrible. Oh, no. Oh, you were ready. Unfortunately, as you could probably hear, I've just gotten home from the uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and while I was there, I caught just a terrible, terrible case of affluenza. Ah, yes. I, I imagine that that place is rife with this disease. I've never seen so much affluenza in, in one place, Hank. It turns out that no matter how rich or powerful you are, you can still get the common cold. Um, <laughs> so, unfortunately, I'm horribly sick and also somewhat jet-lagged. But uh, I did, uh, you know, I did have a lot of interesting conversations Uh, at the World Economic Forum, and uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have been there. I just uh, wish that I had not come home uh, with this uh, horrific, horrific illness. I have a question for you, John, an important question that I I am uh, looking forward to the answer to. While you were there, why did you choose to touch other people? That's a great question. So at the World Economic Forum, the uh, instead of like a currency of money, the currency seems to be business cards and uh, people just throw them at you and they throw them at you right after they themselves have touched them. <laughs> and so no matter how much I avoided handshakes or bathed myself in Purell, I was stuck with these just toxic uh, business cards covered in viruses and bacteria, as you well know, since we're half virus. Oh, Hank, I have great news. What? What? Research has just come out indicating that the number of human cells in a human body is not one-tenth of the number of microbial cells, but in fact approximately equal to the number of microbial cells. <laughs> so I am I am half human. This is so encouraging half to human. me. It's a lot better than it's a lot better than you thought, John. I I have to say the most the most fascinating thing about this story that I read was uh the line, I believe it was um 
it's close enough that a, a single defecation event can uh, can can move the scale in the other direction. So you can be mostly bacteria before you poop, yeah, and then mostly human after you poop. To which a yeah. friend of mine on Facebook said that explains why I always feel more human after I poop. <laughs> I'm so I'm so distressed by this research. I was frankly I was better <laughs> off when I thought that it was an approximation than when we knew these details. Um, All right, John, I got another question for you. How many business cards does it take at the Davos World Economic Forum to purchase a teriyaki seitan sandwich? (laughs) Well, uh, as far as I could tell, there was no food for sale. Uh, You just had to show up at the right times and then you ate it quickly before uh, before everyone else got to it. But it was a really no, it was a really interesting conference. Um, I did not print my own business cards because, you know, I've never had business cards. It's something of a point of pride for me. And so I uh, I had essentially no way of exchanging um, exchanging my myself or, or or whatever approximation of myself a business card represents with anyone, which was a weird kind of uh, powerlessness, but also a weird kind of power where people would be like, he doesn't have cards. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he must be real important. Just Google me. I'm John Green. He's either really high up the chain or he's so far down the chain he doesn't even know about business cards. It turns out it's the latter, but what can you do? I know that we've been talking for a, for a long time and haven't gotten to any of the normal parts of the podcast, but I want to tell you the the story of the one time I met a billionaire. Great. Because I'm sure you met several this week, but I've met one. I was uh, in the in the Bloomberg building uh, where where Bloomberg, the publication, is created uh, with Emerson Electric. Uh, they were taking me around to talk to press mm-hmm. about our our thing that we do together. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they were like, and, and the people we were talking to was like, oh, Michael Bloomberg is here. Do you want to say hi? And we were like, yes, that sounds awesome. And uh, so so we we stood in a little circle with the the people from this uh, engineering company and me. And we went around the circle. They all introduced themselves. And and uh, and so it sort of started, and they like they shook hands, and then they talked about their business, what their market cap was, how many employees they had, where their offices were, and then uh, they got to me, and I just like stuck my hand out, and I said, "Hi, I'm Hank. Nice to meet you." And and Michael Bloomberg said to me, "I think you may be the first man who has ever introduced himself to me with only his first name." <laughs> Women do that all the time, but never men. Well, so that was my interaction with Michael Bloomberg. It's very possible that uh, you didn't just meet your first billionaire, Hank, but also the next president of the United States, at least if recent news reports are to be believed. <laughs> are you serious? Uh, this is a topic of hot conversation at the World Economic Forum. Lots of people, of course, wanting Michael Bloomberg to run uh, for president so that we can have a proper billionaire uh, in office. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're like, you know who really knows how to fix things? People like me. <laughs> hey, so uh, speaking of billionaires, just one more story before we get to the proper podcast. Uh, while I was in um, while I was in Davos, I met someone who is currently a billionaire, um, but who is uh, fastidiously working uh, to no longer be one. Melinda Gates. Uh, she and uh, her husband, Bill Gates, co-founded the Gates Foundation, the largest uh, nonprofit, I think, in the world right now. And um, I met her and we were talking. She's a genuine fan of uh, our work, Hank. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Sarah came into the room, my wife, because uh, I had like she had to grab me and we had to go to someplace else. And uh, Melinda Gates uh, turned to my wife and said, you must be Sarah. Wow. And that was so impressive to me. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was just, I was, I, I was like slack jawed. I was like, geez, I barely recognize you. 
or your or your husband. <laughs> I have like I have the ability to remember about eight faces at any given time. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. So that was very impressive to me. She was in general just uh, crazy uh, smart and interesting uh, to to talk to, and so like committed and passionate. And one of the highlights of the week for me, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, frankly, there was a lot of like uh, seeing the sausage being made and and finding it a little uh, a little mm-hmm. uh, unsettling. But um, both meeting her, meeting the CEO of Save the Children, uh, was amazing, and then meeting the uh, undersec undersecretary of the UN Refugee Agency uh, was really amazing. Uh, all three of those women like were tremendously inspiring to me and uh, really. Uh, really exciting almost as if yeah so it was really i don't know that that was the highlight for me it was a weird week obviously i got this illness but um but it was those those meetings were were really interesting should we move on to some questions oh hey i have one more thing i have to say oh geez wow we're bad at this you also have to do the poem don't forget about the poem i'm so sorry in our last episode i said that the united states dollar is only currency in the united states that it was a terrible horrible lie i apologize there's Ecuador, there's the uh, United States minor outlying islands, there's the British Virgin Islands. I'm sorry, it was obviously a disgraceful mistake. John was just too caught up in being angry at pennies to believe that anyone else would choose to use them. That's right. All right, I I, uh, I did I did kind of want to call you on that as you said it, but you seemed so sure that I was like, I must be wrong. I have a great gift for uh, sounding like I am right, especially when I am wrong. Mm, I, I also, you, I have learned that from you. Yeah, it's a terrible, it's like a terrible, terrible gift. Um, <laughs> I also forgot that generally here in the beginning of the podcast, uh, I read you a short poem. Do that. <clears throat> I feel so crappy. Uh, I was thinking recently, Hank, you know, we had... Uh, Two unexpected weeks of grieving David Bowie, uh, and then in the interim, lots of other people died. I don't want to say that 2016 is the year of celebrity death, but um, I don't know. It seems like it seems like an unusual number of people are dying. But then again, January is the number one month for death in the world. Um, anyway, huh. uh, Alan Rickman died, uh, and of course, uh, just just earlier uh, yesterday, as we're recording this, we heard about the death of the great character actor Abe Vigoda. Um, who's 94 years old, lived a great, uh, long, complicated, uh, interesting life. It reminded me of this poem uh, by Robert Burns, the 18th century Scottish, very important to uh, identify him as Scottish, uh, poet um, who was not English and indeed was also not from England and uh, was not English. Okay, this uh, (laughs) poem is called Epitaph on a Friend by Robert Burns. An honest man here lies at rest, the friend of man, the friend of truth, the friend of age and guide of youth. Few hearts like his with virtue warmed, few heads with knowledge so informed. If there's another world, he lives in bliss. If there is none, he's made the best of this. Epitaph on a Friend by Robert Burns. Lovely. Uh, John, do you know that, interestingly, January is the number one month for for death? Apparently, I didn't know that, but you did. But February is the... is the last month for death. It is also last place in the amount of beer drinking per month and last place in the amount of money spent per month because it has fewer days. I was going to say, that's the least interesting t- statistic possible. The shortest <laughs> month is also the least deadly month. Um, <laughs> but yes, no, January, yeah. partly because it has 31 days, but partly because there just seems to be something about winter uh, that kills us. Uh, January is indeed the deadliest month. Also, there's some thought that people really like to get through the holidays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
at the end of their lives. Um, anyway, let's move on to uh, away from the darkness toward uh, the questions from our beautiful listeners. Uh, the, I, I, there's, there's also, I think, a uh, there, there may be a tax advantage to having people die in January rather than in December. And so occasionally, like occasionally, doctors who see their patients die on the thirty first or on on the last day of December mm-hmm. will just say that they died on January first. Yeah, because it's just like it's like it's a good thing for the taxes of the family of the person. So that is an interesting thing as well. Oh, God bless our tax policy. Uh, can yeah. we uh, can we move on to the questions from the listeners? Yes, we can. That I think I think we had enough weird talk about. Death in months. <laughs> <laughs> but it wouldn't be Dear Hank and John without a little bit of talk about death and months. We have a question. This one is from Louisa, who asks, Dear Hank and John, a common question when meeting new people, both on the internet and in the meat space, is where are you from? I find this a deceptively difficult question. What are they asking me? Where I was born? Where did I grow up? Where do I live? Where did I just move from? For me, and a lot of people, I think, these are all different places. I also don't know how specific I'm supposed to be. Do they want my address or the planet I'm from? What are these people asking? And why must they give me such an emotional crisis when I'm only just meeting them? P.S. I love your podcast. It's actually kind of funny. Thanks, Louisa. That's very generous. <laughs> I apologize for my earlier affluenza joke. Um, uh, yeah, so I think what people are trying to do is uh, put you in a category that makes sense to them. Um, but they're also looking for a topic of conversation. I might have said this before on the podcast, but my Italian friend Enrico uh, is enraged by nothing in the world more than when people ask him if he's from Italy uh, because he has a very thick Italian accent. And as as he said, (laughs) says in his thick Italian accent, I won't attempt to recreate it. Of course, I'm from Italy. Why do you think I sound like this? Um, (laughs) and And then when you ask him where he's from in Italy, he says, I'm from Rome. I bet you went there in college. (laughs) <laughs> so I think it's a mix of people trying to uh, find a topic of conversation and also uh, trying to like put you in a certain uh, category that will be helpful to them for the rest of the conversation. But of course, it's infuriating to you because this is not the first time that you've been asked if you're from Italy or indeed if you're from Rome or listen to someone's stories about being in college in Rome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think that I think that's accurate. And and you know, it's just it's a kind of way of asking about a person and. Uh, asking about their their background and a little bit more like you know people ask me and I you know I live in Montana and I say that I'm from Florida for me I was I lived in Florida until I was you know I, I, through my entire youngness and I think that's true of the majority of people so I I think a lot of people are looking for that thing like you know and, and they think that because they lived in one place because the majority of people have that that everyone else is going to be like that. But of course, then you have to say something like, oh, I moved around a lot. Um, and then it's then it becomes a much longer conversation. I kind of want to tell you, and I kind of don't want to tell you my, uh, my surrogate question for this question. And the reason I don't want to tell you is because I like it and I don't want people to steal it from me. Well, tell me anyway, what is it? I guess it's too late now. I ask people what their favorite bridge is. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible intro question. Well, it's not like the first question I ask. It's not like you walk to somebody and you're like, "Where are you from?" But like once, like the conversation. Hi, my name's Hi, Hi, Hi Mayor Bloomberg. My name's Hank. What's your favorite bridge? <laughs> 
<laughs> and Michael Bloomberg's like, you know, this is weird, Hank, but nobody's ever introduced themselves to me that way. <laughs> Only women. Only women ever say that. Uh, oh, man. I like that Michael Bloomberg feels so confident about putting people into just the two buckets. <laughs> And I like that you at least complicated that a little bit for him. Yeah. Well, I've, what I said to him after he said that, I was like, well, I'm not expecting you to remember who I am. Yeah, no joke. He's not Melinda Gates or anything. Like, you know, like, I'm sure you, I'm sure this happens to you like eight times a day and has for the last 20 years. Like, why would you? Anyway. Um, yeah. So I, but, but in, once into the conversation, if I want to know a little bit more about a person, I ask them what their favorite bridge is. And I think that that tells me more about them than where they're from. And oftentimes the bridge is in the place where they are from, because, you know, sometimes you don't live in a place with lots of bridges. Um, but I think a lot of people do. And, uh, and so they tell me about a place that means something to them. Hank, what is your favorite bridge? Uh, you know, that now that I've asked the question enough, it's become kind of a complicated answer for me. But I think it's the California Street Bridge in Missoula, which is a pedestrian bridge. Um, it's really not, it's like very far away from any main roads. Um, it's kind of a, uh, it can be a little bit of a skeezy part of town. Uh, and, and I had I have a friend there almost get mugged and uh, by like children they like tried to mug him and he just kicked them and, and, and biked away um, but it's uh it's got lots of like stupid like high schooler graffiti and uh, it's really pretty and you can just stand there and look at the river and it's nice all right that's an acceptable answer uh, let's move on to another question having established Hank's favorite bridge because that's really what you come to dear Hank and John for this question's from Allison who writes dear John and Hank uh, on drinking cereal milk, I think it's very important not to be wasteful. I don't like cereal without milk, but I also hate the taste of the milk after my cereal has been in it. I was just wondering, how do I reconcile these two things? Well, I, one, love the taste of my milk after it's had cereal in it. It's far better than the taste of just milk. So I have never had this problem. I'm just like, I want, I want as much of that at the bottom of the bowl as possible. But... Uh, for you, uh, I have no suggestions. My suggestion would actually be to go ahead and send your cereal milk to Hank because he's extremely enthusiastic about it, Allison. He lives in Missoula. And in my experience, if you just write uh, a letter, uh, or I guess it wouldn't be a letter, it would be a sealed package. <laughs> if you just, uh, you know, put it in a Ziploc bag there, put it in a box and just write uh, Hank. Um, uh, Missoula. Then maybe in parentheses, uh, favorite favorite bridge uh, is is the one in Missoula, the pedestrian one, and then beneath <laughs> that, Missoula, Montana, and a zip code in Missoula. It'll get to Hank. Yeah, no, no. I think you just write Hank Missoula, and it'll 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 find its way to me. Uh, but I I would suggest actually that you just put it in the Ziploc and then write on the Ziploc Hank Missoula. And then just put it in your mailbox and uh, it'll get to no, me. No, you're going to have to put some stamps on there. Listen, the United <laughs> States Postal Service doesn't work for free. Okay? Uh, no, no. It's all about saving milk, John. They, they understand that when it's about efficiency, they can, uh, they can go the extra mile. No, I, I feel like the carbon footprint of that milk would be much higher than just throwing away the milk, actually. <laughs> Allison, the right thing to do in this situation is to throw away the milk. I think probably John is correct. Uh, I, <laughs> is, or, or find a friend. Who really enjoys cereal? <laughs> <laughs> 
have that friend come over to your house and drink your cereal milk, which you, is so much more intimate yes. than anything that you can do. Like it's <laughs> the most horrifyingly intimate thing. I wouldn't even drink the cereal milk of my children. Hank, can I make a uh, terrible confession to you that you already know about? Sure, yes. So I do not like milk in my cereal. And one day, um, I would say maybe three or four years into our marriage, I had a bowl of Raisin Bran and I did what I always do, which is I went over to the uh, refrigerator and I stuck the bowl of Raisin Bran uh, up against the water thing um, so that water would Ugh. come out and then it would water my Raisin Bran, which is how I like to eat my what? Raisin Bran. And my, I do uh, not know this about you. That is disgusting. And my, my wife, I mean, I, you know, we were married. I think we didn't have children yet, so she still could have gotten out of it. My wife, I mean, she's never looked at me before like that with just pure <laughs> disgust. And I, I have to say, I think that eating your cereal with water is the best way to eat it. You don't add calories. You don't uh, unnecessarily oh use an animal product. And you get all the sogginess and crunchiness of a good wet cereal. Oh, my, oh my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my oh my God, John. <laughs> oh, my God. It's delicious. You oh should try it. You, should, you don't know. You've never tried it. It's great. I haven't. It just seems, it seems, it seems inhuman. It seems, uh, it seems not of this world. <laughs> if you told me a space alien put water on their cereal, I would be like, okay, I guess. But a human <laughs> being on the planet Earth. Oh my I'll God. try it. I'll try it tonight. Uh, when I have my, when I have my 11 o'clock bowl of, of, of uh, frosted mini wheats. I'll put some water on there and, and, and waste some frosted mini-wheats for you. Just make them awful and destroy Let them. Let me know uh, how it tastes on the next episode of uh, Dear Hank and John. In the meantime, I think that we have uh, adequately plumbed the depths of Allison's question, and it is time to uh, answer a new one. All right, this question is from Logan, who asks, Dear Hank and John, so I was going to eat a banana for breakfast, but I noticed that it is, it is neither hexagonal or hexagonal. There are only four sides to this quote-unquote banana. Should I trust it? Should I eat it? No. No. Yeah, I mean. No, you cannot eat a banana with less than five sides. Five-sided bananas are okay. Six-sided bananas are okay. A four, I would even argue that a three-sided banana is okay because there's probably uh, three tiny little sides that you're not noticing. A four-sided banana is cause for concern. No, yeah, I mean a square banana uh, d did they make it? This could also be rectangular, but it's still upsetting. Uh, or or trapezoidal, or you know, a number of different shapes. But uh, I I, I want to know, like, do you live in a place where they like make square watermelons because it's more pleasing? Like they do they do that in some places. Yeah. Uh, where they like they like bind them. Maybe you live in a place where they bind bananas to be square because there's a a cultural interest in squareness or hexa or or like a trapezoidalness. <laughs> I think a p parallelogram uh, banana would be pretty interesting looking. <laughs> Is it a parallelogram banana? Because I actually might eat that. That sounds kind of delicious to me. So uh, um, Hank and I are in agreement on this one. You cannot eat a square or rectangular banana. Uh, if it's a parallelogram, I think more research is needed into the question. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would like to see a picture of this banana because I'm curious if it's if it's rounded four sides. I'm sure it is somewhat rounded. And so maybe there are sides hiding in there. But I want to see a picture. If, if you, Logan, still have that banana, tweet us, Hank Green and John Green on Twitter, and... Uh, and, and you, we will we want to take a look at this thing because I I kind of don't even believe it exists. 
It seems. Yeah, I think you might. I think you might be missing a side. Um, although at this point, uh, it's very possible that the banana will no longer be ripe enough to establish uh, its yes, sidedness. Yes. But if you ever see a four-sided banana, just send it. Send it our way for right, sure. Yes. Yes. I mean, the question for Logan is: How familiar familiar are you with counting? Are you new to counting? <laughs> As that's like, it should have been our first question. But uh, if you're if you if you're an experienced counter, then I want to see a picture of this banana. Yeah, that's a great point, Hank. All right, Hank, we have another question. This one comes from Matt, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently got into competitive Pokemon. Congratulations, <laughs> Matt. That's so exciting. I couldn't be... Oh, wait. I forgot. He said, no, I didn't. But ah! I did recently get married. That's also exciting. It's not as cool as getting into competitive Pokemon, though. Let me submit that these things are not mutually exclusive, Matt. It's not too late to get into competitive Pokemon. Anyway, I had the pleasure of marrying my husband in my home state of Oklahoma, something I thought might never happen in my lifetime because I am gay. I was wondering, what is something that has happened in your lifetime that you never imagined could or would happen? I mean... I, just the legalization of gay marriage in America. I, I don't know if I never thought that that could or would happen, but it happened so fast that I remember thinking at at one moment, like, wow, it's really ridiculous that that hasn't happened. Uh, but that was only a year after thinking um, that, that like, this is an intract- intractable problem that we're not going to solve very quickly. But then we solved it very quickly. Well, I mean, we didn't solve it that quickly, to be fair. Um, and there were right, know, no, decades but like, and like decades. From of- the moment when I thought that we, from the moment, like there was a moment when I thought that we could not do it. And then, and then the moment when we did do it was very close to that moment. Yeah, it was, you know, it's interesting because there were all of those, um, you know, over decades, really, uh, votes, um, usually in, in non-presidential election years to bring out uh, a conservative base. There were all those votes to insert into state party, uh, state to insert into state constitutions that, um, you know, marriage was only between one man and one woman and all of that stuff. And then it did fall apart quickly. Um, and, and of course, all of those state constitutions, many of which also contain uh, lots of other uh, discriminatory language, um, were, re- were rendered ir- irrelevant um, by the U.S. Supreme Court. I, I mean, certainly, if you told me in high school uh, that, I mean, I, you know, I, I was really in the first, in my high school, you know, there were two kids in our class. We had a class of 53 kids who came out as gay during high school. And they were the first kids, I think, in the history of the school to come out. Um, and it's it seemed extremely both brave and scary to me that they were that they were doing that. Like, it seemed mm-hmm. like something that I could never do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think the landscape of that has changed tremendously and like way more than I ever would have thought possible. Um in you know 1994 1995 that said like i when i look at like what i mean you know we grew up in when 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 hank and i were kids in like the 1980s uh there there were all of these uh famines uh especially in in east africa and millions of millions of people died and there was like live aid concerts and uh, all of these attempts to, you know, raise money to address the famine. And it wasn't done very effectively or efficiently. And to see like rates, I, I don't think I could have predicted then that rates of malnutrition, that rates of infant mortality, that the number of people who die because of like lack of access to nutrition would be so dramatically lower in just 25 years. I think like maybe I didn't internalize it 
because I didn't understand the scope of the problem, but the problem seemed natural. It seemed to me as a child natural that some people were hungry and others were fed. Um, and it no longer, it, 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 I think one thing that's changed is that at least for me, it no longer seems natural. And that seems like a big, big change in my lifetime. But I also would definitely cite LGBT rights as it like just a tremendous change that I didn't see coming. There's also a number of like cultural ones that I just, I'm just astounded by the, the things that, ha that catch on. And, uh, you know, that, uh, one of the top songs of the last 10 years is Gangnam style. Like that's, that's, on the, that's not a thing that, that like for the former existence of the world would have allowed and uh, right. and the fact that like uh, Kim and Kanye got married, I would never have expected that. That is just uh, that didn't come as a huge surprise to me. I think Kanye and Kim are both geniuses, actually. Well, um, I... underappreciated geniuses of a very new kind, and of course they were going to come together. It's like uh, it's like uh, you know uh, stars in space that that form double supernovae. I don't know anything about astronomy. Um, <laughs> yeah, the other the other one that I would cite is uh, I, I don't think that uh, 20 years ago I would have had any way of knowing or internalizing the extent to which the internet would be part of my life. The internet was a thing when I was a teenager and when Hank was a kid, the internet was a thing that a very small number of people made a very active choice to be on. Um, and now there is no such thing as an internet person really any anymore. Um, there are just, you know, the people who have access to the internet and the, and the people who don't, uh, and I could never have anticipated like, or I would have bought six shares of Yahoo stock in 1996, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like the domain name cars.com. Oh, we could have killed it with cars.com. Hank, back when, uh, <laughs> back when our website was called like crs.org slash IAG slash 1774256 slash A. Yeah. Dot HTML. <laughs> okay. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor. For me, and I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health, and you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally, no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. 
and these doctors all have verified reviews from actual, real patients, booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. All right, Hank, here's another question. It's from uh, Delaney who asks, Dear John and Hank, why do smells become normal? For example, my boyfriend's mother smokes in their house. And when I would go over to their house, I would smell smoke like anyone would. But recently, I don't smell the smoke. She still smokes in the house. Why don't I notice it? Uh, Because... Uh, your body is really good at ignoring things. Uh, it, 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 you can't have too many things, like too many senses happening all at once, and so your body has to figure out which one of those things are important. And if you have constant stimulus, then you uh, will basically lose the ability to feel that thing. Like, I cannot feel my glasses on my face. I, I also, like, basically, unless I try to, like, pay attention, I do not see them. They, I, can always, I can always see them. They're always there, but I... I do not have any idea that they're there unless I look for them. This is also true. Like if you chew, this is a a gross example. Uh, If you chew mint gum, you will chew mint gum and then it will stop tasting like mint to you. But if you give that mint gum to someone else, it will still taste like mint to them. We think that all the flavor is going away, but in fact, the flavor is still there. We're just adapting to it. This is called sensory adaptation or neural adaptation. And, uh, and there's lots of different, uh, versions of it, lots of different experiences of it. And smell, uh, is neurally adaptive, which is why mint is the same thing. You don't taste mint, you smell it. So, um, yeah, uh, there's, there's lots of research on how, uh, this works and uh, how your nervous system adapts to things so that if it's like, you know, I don't want to, I don't need that sensation anymore. Uh, And like, if I put my wallet in my left pocket, I'm like, there's the giant thing in my pocket. But if it's my right pocket, where it always is, I have no idea it's there. That's weird. My my wallet is always in my left pocket. Really? Yep. That's weird. That's super weird. That's almost as weird as, uh, as you drinking Allison's cereal milk or asking people what your favorite, (laughs) what their favorite bridge is. (laughs) <laughs> today has been uh, today has been an episode of Dear Hank and John where we both reveal our deep eccentricities. All right, John, this one is from Nicole who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just had a horrifying realization. Everyone everywhere has been lied to. Is that foil that you wrap food and other things with made of tin or aluminum? It's called both tin foil and aluminum foil, as far as I know, but tin and aluminum are very different and it can't be both. I am extremely befuddled. Please help. I can help. Uh, I can help because I, I, I Googled it. Um, <laughs> tin foil uh, used to be a thing. Ah, I see. Uh, however, now, since World War II, it has almost always been aluminum foil because aluminum or aluminium, if we are British or probably Scottish. <laughs> Not sure. Uh, I'm so scared now. Ever since Robert, ever since Robert Burns, I was so scared of accidentally calling him English. Um, anyway, uh, aluminium foil or aluminum foil, uh, because it's both cheaper and more durable, uh, sort of rose in popularity in World War II. But the uh, word 
tinfoil uh, just kind of like hung around because, you know, they look about the same. So that is your answer. Uh, it's the rare question that I actually have a definitive answer to. Look at you. Uh, and now I'm going to ask one that I don't have a definitive answer to. All right. All right, Hank, this question came in from Naomi uh, with the subject line, this question will leave you speechless. Dear John and Hank, what's the deal with clickbait? Why do we fall for it? And should we be protecting ourselves from this contagious social media epidemic? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I, the question is, do we fall for it or is it designed to make us fall for it? Because, of course, that's like we fall for it because it's des- like it's designed to trick our brains. It's not. Yeah. I mean, like the, the number one thing is you in in the Internet world, you the, the currency is the click, the share. Uh, you have to get people to look at your stuff in a world of infinite content that's very difficult. And so you have to create really good, uh, sticky, attractive headlines. And uh, and that has become more and more important in the world of online media to the point where uh, I think ev- like we, we are having a rebellion to it. And eventually I'm really interested to see like sort of long term what happens with the, the idea of the headline and also with the idea of content, with there being so much created so fast that, of course, it's impossible to consume all of the content that exists. Uh, and in fact, it, it's almost as if there's more content than there is people to consume it. Um, so, but like, as far as why we fall for it, it's because, you know, we want to know, we want to know why that adorable thing is the most adorable thing. Like you read the, you read the headline and you're, you're like, yes, that is what I want to know. And, and in fact, I, I often now find myself saying like that the, the headline will be a question and I will want to know the answer to that question. And I legitimately do want to know the answer to that question. And then there will be an article. And in that article, there is one sentence that is the answer to the question. And I have to find that sentence and it's very frustrating. And then I find the sentence and I'm like, okay, now I know the answer. And then I move on. Yeah. It creates an itch that needs to be scratched. I actually wrote a blog post with no, uh, no headline for the World Economic Forum, and they gave it a headline, and it was such a good headline in terms of its its uh, stickiness that I myself clicked on the headline to find my own answer <laughs> to the question asked uh, in the headline, which was why the word millennial makes me cringe. And I was like, why does the word millennial make me cringe? Um, and then I remembered while reading uh, the article. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's this very powerful thing. I also think that uh, uh, ultimately, I'm not sure it leads to uh, deeper comprehension. But Hank, I just wanted to jump on one thing that you said that I thought was really interesting, which is that we live in a world of infinite content, and it feels like there isn't enough, uh, there aren't enough people to consume all the content that's being made. Uh, I was in a uh, one of the most interesting meetings that I was in uh, at the World Economic Forum was about the future of the internet, and people. Uh, who live outside of the rich world where the lingua franca is is English um, or, you know, Spanish or Portuguese or German, like one of the sort of big um, rich world languages, um, uh, we're actually saying in this meeting that there isn't nearly enough good content uh, and that there isn't that, 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 you know, that, that nothing is being translated. And when it is translated, it's translated so poorly that, um, you know, it, you know, you'd much rather, uh, read a book or read a print magazine. Uh, and because the business models, uh, you know, in the, in, it's this true in the, uh, the U S as well. The business models haven't 
of content creation haven't quite caught up with where they were in the in the print world. Um, but that's uh, that's a much bigger problem in places that don't have uh, the kind of like capital and and investment that we have in the in the States or in Europe. And I thought that was really interesting because I feel the same way. I feel like, gosh, there's plenty, you know, there's more than enough. But then you think about the 4.5 billion people who don't have regular access to the internet. And when they do get access to the internet, there isn't the kind of the content that will be most useful to them or most helpful to them isn't in their language, isn't easy to access. And it's, it's similar to the, to the problem that we had on the internet you know, uh, back in the 90s when everything was indexed so poorly that it was incredibly difficult to find anything. It was incredibly difficult to find sources. Um, and, you know, then then companies started solving that problem. I think Wikipedia helped solve that problem. Google helped solve that problem. And it was a really interesting uh, idea that, like, this problem has only been solved for slightly less than half the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Yeah, that that is a really great point. And, and it's, it's also very true of when I see... YouTube things happening like I pay a lot of attention to YouTube uh, more than I do to the rest of the internet and watching YouTube uh, content happening in native languages in India in Russia in Brazil in Venezuela and like you see these like it's it's so interesting to see the like uh, the smaller like independent YouTubers making it there because there isn't the what we have in America, which is so much content that it's basically impossible to get noticed. Um, and so you see a very similar trajectory to the early days of YouTube back in like 2006 and 2007 when there was just not a lot of people doing it. And so people were craving this kind of content. Now no one craves more content on YouTube. Uh, there's just so much of it that there's always something good to watch. In English. All right, Hank, we have another question. Uh, this one's from Sean, who writes, Dear John and Hank, are you satisfied with your names? I always thought I was satisfied with mine, but that was before I knew I could have been named Autobio Akinfenwa. <laughs> and Autobio Akinfenwa is surely the finest name that's ever been given. Now I feel dissatisfied. How do I cope with this? Oh, Sean. Well, I mean... You know, Hank Hank has a pretty good name, Hank Green. Like, he can get hankgreen.com, for instance. Mm-hmm. I mean, my name's John Green. That's been owned by a realtor in southern Mississippi for, like, you know, 150 years. Before there was even an internet, John Green in southern Mississippi had johngreen.com. So I think uh, I always felt like Hank was easier. It was easier for him to Google himself, which I guess is a bit of a poisoned chalice. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I was always a little bit jealous of Hank growing up because he had a proper proper good name you know there's lots of good hanks in american history you got hank williams uh <laughs> historical hanks hank aaron hank aaron hank, hank aaron. hill uh <laughs> hank hill <laughs> yeah i mean whereas there's there's there, you know there's surprisingly few good johns in american <laughs> history what are you talking about um and john itself is is used as both a uh both a word for people who go to prostitutes and a word for toilets. So, I don't know. It could have been made easier for me, but I, I would argue that actually it's not easier to go through the world named Autobiolock and Fenwell. Yeah. Um, obviously, that's a great name to have once you're successful, but uh, I think that probably, you know, you get you get teased a lot, which might be why Autobiolock and Fenwa, um, you know, is 250 pound, uh, you know, <laughs> just the strongest man alive. Yeah, the, certainly the, the largest... Uh, professional football player in in League Two. Oh, or or any other league. Yeah. <laughs> really? 
Yeah, and soon he's going to be the largest professional football player in League One. But yes, no, he is the he is the strongest player in all of FIFA 16, Hank. So he is, at least according to FIFA, the strongest professional footballer on earth. All right. Uh, well, John, this podcast is brought to you by Adebayo Akwenfenwa, the strongest professional football player on earth. So strong that he brings, physically brings, dear Hank and John to your ears every week. <laughs> And of course, this podcast is brought to you by Four-Sided Bananas. Four-Sided Bananas, <laughs> a cause for concern. This podcast is also brought to you by Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the choice of billionaires everywhere. <laughs> oh, man, Hank, all of our billionaire listeners are going to take this so personally. It's hard <laughs> out there sure for a are. billionaire. I can't tell you how many of them complained to me about their various woes last week. And of course, this podcast is brought to you by Hank's Favorite Bridge. Hank's favorite bridge. In Hank's opinion, a way of understanding something deep and important about you. <laughs> Basically, yeah. That's what I'm trying to get at. All right, John. Uh, do you want to do one last question? Yeah, let's do one last question, Hank. That's a great idea. Uh, do you want a question about chemistry? Oh, I guess. I hope I hope I know the answer. This question comes from Terry, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I know this question is more science than advice, but I've always wondered this and expect you might know. I know that cooking, especially baking, involves lots of chemistry, but I've never completely understood why, if something says it should be baked at 250 degrees for an hour, you can't just bake it at 500 degrees for half an hour. <laughs> My burnt cake and I need your help. Uh, uh, so heat is a is a as a transferal of energy. So what what you're doing is, uh, but but uh, energy does not transfer uniformly. So if you cook something at uh, 250 degrees for an hour versus 500 degrees at half an hour, uh, you may in fact be adding the same amount of energy to your cake, but you are not uh, adding it evenly. Um, also, there are certain things like, uh, like uh, chemical bonds that will not break at 250 degrees, but will break at 500. So uh, th there are a number of different reasons for this. One, uh, it was not going to cook evenly. Two, there are lots of different physical and chemical properties of all of the atoms and molecules in your cake that uh, are gonna behave very differently at 500 degrees versus 250 degrees. So just because you're putting the same, the same amount of energy into something does not mean uh, that you are uh, they were going to have the same effect. So, like, I could uh, I could put my hand uh, on uh, like in front of a fireplace and like warm it up, and that would be nice. And I could do that for like an hour, and I would receive the same amount of energy as if I stuck my hand in the fireplace for five minutes <laughs> uh, or five seconds, and that uh, that would not have the same effect. It would be the same amount of heat entering my body. But it would not be, uh, it would not feel the same to me. <laughs> well, I think what's most encouraging about this answer, Hank, is that now at last we know how to bake your hand into a cake. <laughs> don't do that. Very slowly. Very slowly. Very slowly. Don't bake, don't bake Hank's hand. No, on, if you want to bake anything into a cake, it should be a hot dog, and that cake should be made out of cornmeal, and it should be a corn dog. <laughs> Oh, Hank, what's the news from Mars? Actually, if this anybody wants, if, if any, no, I want to say, if anybody wants to try, I don't know if this is a thing, but if anybody wants to try to make a corn dog cake, I want to see a picture of that. I'll pay you $5 to the first person who posts a corn dog cake on Twitter. What is a corn dog cake? It's like a cake with 
lots of I hot don't dogs know. In it? I don't know. All I'm saying is corn dog cake. And then and then go with that. I think that's a terrible, terrible idea. Can we move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, please? I'm very excited to share with you the news from AFC Wimbledon. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first so that people can skip just the last bit and not also the first part where I talk about Mars? Uh, you go first. All right. The John, exceptionally weirdly, NASA's Opportunity Rover, which was supposed to last for three months has just had its 12th anniversary on the surface of Mars. Wow. wow. It has been there for, for 12 years, uh, and they are still operating it. It's still moving around. It's still doing science. It's uh, powered by solar panels, uh, which can be uh, you know not the best source of power uh, in a place where it's uh, it can be windy and covered in dust, and it can be dark for a lot of the time, and especially in the Martian winter. Yeah. But uh, they have developed um, a, a cleaning protocols that allow Opportunity to clean off its solar panels, which was not something that they expected uh, would be possible. Uh, but the, uh, basically the solar panels on opportunity get covered in dust. And, and that was what they thought was going to be the limiting factor in the, the mission of this Rover. But, uh, they have figured out how to continue cleaning it off. And it, uh, it has even stayed active this whole winter because, uh, the solar panels have been much cleaner this winter than the last few mm-hmm. winters because, uh, uh, the, the wind has actually blown the dust off. So, it's uh, it's fantastic that uh, this thing that we thought, you know, we spent a lot of money getting it there. And we thought we were going to get three months of science out of. We are now 12 years into the Opportunities mission, and it continues to operate, which is just wonderful and uh, fills me with, with joy. Well, I couldn't be, uh, I certainly couldn't be any happier uh, with this whole situation, that, that we still have a rover on Mars, in addition to, I believe, another yeah. rover that is also on Mars. It's true. It's true. And Spirit, uh, which landed at a very similar time uh, to Opportunity, and it was the same, basically the same rover, a twin rover, uh, stopped uh, stopped talking to Earth back in 2010. And uh, and for for whatever reason, Opportunity is just much more long lived. It's uh, it's 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 gone for more than tw- about twice the amount of time that Spirit did. Crazy. Well, you know what else is crazy, Hank? What? If you Google League Two table right now. Okay, I'm going to do it. So when last we left the exploits of the AFC Wimbledon uh, grown-up team, not the under-18s that that beat Newcastle, but when last we left uh, the grown-up AFC Wimbledon, they uh, had just beaten Cambridge United Mm Uh, 4-1. That was their second win in a row. Uh, Then they went on to beat Mansfield 3-1, coming uh, from 1-0 down. You know what they sing, uh, 1-0 down to 3-1 up. That's the way that we're going to win the league. Um, uh, <laughs> is there no cup? in that game? There's no cup at the end of this league. Uh, there is sadly, there's no cup at the end of this league. What does the trophy um, look like? Is it a good trophy? I guess actually, it is rather cup sized. Now that I think about it, um, and cup shaped. So I guess we can sing one nil down to three one up. That's the way we're going to win the cup. So uh, uh, Mansfield went one nil up, and then uh, Montserratian International, our hero Lyle Taylor, uh, scored a goal to tie it. Then there was a goal from Callum Kennedy, who you might know from my FIFA playing, and then a third goal uh, from Adebayo Aziz, the uh, the other Adebayo. Oh. Uh, then, then, a week later, we played Knotts County, and we won 2-0 with goals from Tom Elliott, 
underappreciated Tom Elliott, and Andy Barcham, which means in the last two games, Hank, uh, AFC Wimbledon have scored five goals via five different players. Uh, and I think if wow. you go back uh, go back further, that, that streak continues. It's just an incredibly productive time in the history of AFC Wimbledon. It's an amazing, amazing moment. And if you look at the League Two table right now, Hank, you will see that AFC Wimbledon are eighth on 42 points. The top three teams in League Two automatically go up to League One. Teams four through seven then play in a playoff. Ah, okay. So, all right. AFC Wimbledon is only one point away. In, in fact, you are tied in points with Stanley. Uh, so you both have 42 points, but I imagine Stanley has a higher goal differential. Right. Okay. Right, it's only Accrington Stanley. Okay. Yeah, it's only goal difference that's standing between us and Accrington Stanley. And we actually have a better goal difference uh, than the team uh, currently in six, Leighton Orient. So, Hank. Yeah. Suddenly... I am starting to properly dream. I will tell you how far from from the, the that time when the when the uh, finals begin are you? Well, Hank, there are forty six games. I'm glad you asked. There are forty six games in the season. Different teams have played a different number of games currently. Uh, so some some teams have a game in hand or two games in hand. We've played twenty seven, which means we have nineteen games to go. Uh, mm, this is okay. how close I am to properly dreaming, Hank. I went ahead and looked up the day of the playoff final. Uh, oh, wow. And then I went ahead and looked up plane tickets to figure out, can I drive <laughs> directly from the Indy 500 <laughs> to the airport to get on an airplane um, and then arrive in London in time for the game? Uh, as you know, Hank, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a regular drinker, uh, but I do enjoy the Indy 500. <laughs> uh, so potentially... Uh, potentially, that would mean, you know, 30 to 35 straight hours of good times. All right. All right. That's, uh, that's... We're going to go straight from the Indy 500 to the playoff final. It's going to be amazing. I'm starting to dream, Hank. Starting to dream. We've won four straight games. We've just got to keep this up. I appreciate the dream. You know, if, if I could fly to Mars in 35 hours, I'd do it. Yeah. So. Well... Imagine if instead of arriving in Mars and immediately dying, you instead <laughs> arrived in South London and got to see the most exciting football match imaginable. Uh, then I will, I will imagine that. I will imagine it right now and have a lovely imagining. And, uh, and I will imagine mostly what it will be like for you, which is well, the important Well, good news and bad news. If they make it to the playoff final, you're coming. <laughs> We could do a live episode of Dear Hank and John from the AFC Wimbledon stands from oh the John God. Green stand. It'd be great. I'll cry through the. I'll cry through the whole thing. Yeah. Well, maybe we can do it remotely. Uh, what did we learn today, John? Well, we learned never to trust a banana with less than five sides. Uh, we learned that John is astounded by the state of the internet and cannot believe how relevant it has become to his daily life. And of course we learned that water is an underrated cereal topping. Mmm, I don't know that we learned that. <laughs> uh, pretty sure we didn't learn that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, uh, report back report back next week on what you think of water as a cereal topping I think it's fantastic I think people are just you know people are so set in their ways <laughs> yeah, I guess so I guess so alright John thank you for joining me and thank you to all of the other people for joining us on this episode of Dear Hank and John this podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins our theme music is by Gunnarola thank you all for listening you can send your questions via email to hankandjohn at gmail.com or you can use the hashtag uh, dear Hank and John on uh, Twitter. I'm John Green on Twitter. Hank is Hank Green. On Hank's preferred method of communication, Snapchat, he is Hank GRE. And on Instagram, I'm John Green Writes Books. Thanks again for listening. And as we say in my hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.